This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. Let me start this No Restraint podcast by saying the world has gone frickin' crazy. I'm using the word frickin' because I saw the movie The Banshees of Inisherin, I think that's the right way to pronounce it, last night, and I've never seen a darker film or a film that had me more riveted. So I was thinking about how when life is super simple, you're never satisfied. And when life is super complicated, you're generally overwhelmed. I live somewhere between the two worlds of an island off the coast of Ireland and in the heart of America. I read a news story the other day that 14 Democratic members of Congress have introduced legislation to lower the voting age in the U.S. from 18 to 16. This bill would repeal the 26th Amendment, which in 1971 established 18 as the minimum voting age nationwide, and it would replace it with the new 28th Amendment, making 16-year-olds eligible to participate in all elections. Four of the measure's 14 sponsors are from Massachusetts. Why am I not surprised? Representative Seth Moulton, Ayanna Presley, Lori Trahan, and James McGovern. The others are, hold on to your hats, this is going to surprise you, from New York, Illinois, Michigan, and Oregon. To change the Constitution requires overwhelming public and political backing. Any proposed amendment has to be passed by a two-thirds majority in each House of Congress and then be approved by three-quarters of the state legislatures. That kind of support existed, I think, the last time that the voting age was lowered. In fact, as far back as 1953, the Gallup poll found that public approval for giving 18-year-olds the vote had surged to 63%. President Dwight Eisenhower endorsed making the change in his 1954 State of the Union address. I was one years old. Most Americans accepted the argument that if young men between 18 and 21 were old enough to be drafted and sent to war, they were old enough to be entrusted with the vote. The 26th Amendment was approved by Congress on March 23, 1971, and within three and a half months had been confirmed by the necessary 38 states. It was like the fastest ratification of a constitutional amendment in U.S. history. By contrast, there is very little public support for extending the franchise to high school sophomores. 
Well, I don't know about the rest of you, but I have a high school sophomore in my family. And I can tell you, I do not let him pick the restaurant we're going to eat dinner at. I don't even let him pick out his own shoes. As a matter of fact, my grandson can barely decide on any given day whether to wear sneakers or flip-flops. That's about as deep as 16-year-olds get. As a newly elected member of Congress back in 2019, Ayanna Presley's first legislative proposal was an amendment to lower the voting age for federal elections to 16. The Democrat-led House handily defeated the amendment, 126 to 305. According to a Hill-Harris nationwide poll released back in May of 2019, 75% of registered voters opposed allowing 17-year-olds to participate in elections, and 84% opposed allowing 16-year-olds to vote. That sentiment crosses party lines. Large majorities of Democratic, Republican, and Independent respondents are against allowing teens younger than 18 to vote. So it's safe to say that the latest proposal isn't going anywhere. Still, it's pretty important to understand why further lowering the voting age is a bad idea. Those who back voting rights for 16 and 17-year-olds argue that since kids that age can work and pay taxes and get a driver's license, it isn't right to exclude them from the voting booth. We don't even have voting booths anymore. Here's how Moulton put it in 2020. Americans put a lot of faith in 16-year-olds. We let them drive. We hire them at our businesses and make them pay taxes. Moreover, he wrote, we know that voting at an early age helps encourage civic habits for life. Seth Moulton obviously has never had a 16-year-old. Presley goes even further. In a 2021 statement, she contended that a 16- or 17-year-old was qualified to vote by virtue of the, quote, wisdom and maturity, end quote, that comes from living in a time of unique challenges and hardships and threats. Like, we didn't live through challenges, hardships, and threats like my father's generation didn't live through hardships and challenges and threats. My goodness, by 16 and 17, those young boys were heading off to Iwo Jima and the beach at Normandy. But Ayanna Presley thinks that today's young people have more challenges, more hardships, and more threats. Young people, she says, are entitled to have a say in our federal elections and the policies that impact their lives today and will shape the nation in their lifetime. Okay, Ayana, but can we just hold off two years until they actually know enough to brush their teeth in the morning without being reminded? Such flimsy contentions don't stand up to scrutiny. Americans don't put a lot of faith in 16-year-olds. To be sure, some kids at that age have jobs. Some even contribute to their family's expenses. But the great majority of teens don't work, my grandson being one of them. And vanishingly few hold down full-time jobs. Rare is the 16- or 17-year-old who foots the bill for groceries, rent, or utilities. Yes, kids that age can legally drive, and yes, teenagers pay some taxes. But no one younger than 18, 
and in some cases, 21, may legally drink alcohol or buy tobacco or marijuana. They can't purchase firearms or ammunition. They can't get married or adopt a child. They may not enlist in the military without parental permission or even buy a lottery ticket. They can't book a hotel room or an Airbnb stay. They can't apply for a mortgage. They can't rent an apartment. They can't file a lawsuit. They can't obtain a credit card. They can't work in a bar or write a will. In almost every area of life, society has established 18 as the age of majority because, broadly speaking, that is the age of maturity. Although I think with boys, maybe not. Or at least the age of the minimum level of maturity to be entrusted with important decisions. It is well established that adult and teen brains operate differently. The prefrontal cortex, that's the part of the brain that governs decision-making and long-term thinking and rational judgment, isn't fully developed until the mid-20s. Behavior and reactions in teens are instead controlled by the amygdala, which is the more emotion-driven. That's the impulsive, the primitive section of our brains. If Moulton, Presley, and their colleagues want to make a serious claim that 16-year-olds are mature enough to cast a ballot, they need to show why the scientific consensus on teen immaturity is wrong. And to be consistent, they should also be lobbying to lower the minimum legal age of every other activity to 16. As for the idea that voting at an early age helps encourage civic habits for life, that is also unsupported by any evidence. The same claim was made when the 26th Amendment was being adopted. Lowering the voting age to 18, Senator Ted Kennedy declared, it will bring American youth into the mainstream of our political process, and we will gain a group of enthusiastic, sensitive, idealistic, and vigorous new voters. That actually, in his mind, equates to Democrat voters. That didn't happen. Newly enfranchised 18 to 20-year-olds promptly became the least engaged cohort of voters. In every election, the youngest voters invariably participate at a lower rate than any others. There was considerable hoopla about high turnout, how high it was for younger voters in the November midterm elections, but the data actually confirmed the longstanding pattern. Only 27% of voters younger than 30 bothered to cast a ballot. On the other hand, those were the voters most likely to vote for Democratic candidates. A cynic could be forgiven, and I am a cynic, for wondering whether that's why Democrats like Presley and her co-sponsors are so eager to lower the voting age still more. Weak turnout rates among younger voters shouldn't be surprising. Interest in government and politics tends to rise as the concerns of adulthood rise. Americans who have full-time jobs who have to pay a mortgage, who are raising a family, who file yearly tax returns, who wrestle with health care premiums, are more likely to take an interest in how they are governed than those who don't. For perfectly understandable reasons, teens are apt to worry more about school, social media, 
and relationships with other teens than with candidates, legislation, and public policy. If we don't trust 16-year-olds to serve on a jury or sign a contract, we certainly shouldn't expect them to cast thoughtful votes for presidents and governors and members of Congress. In the eyes of society, adulthood begins at 18. Voting should begin then as well. I have to tell you, I've thought a lot about this, and I really have been observing lately my own 16-year-old grandson and his what seems to be incredibly innocent attitude about politics. He goes along with whatever he hears on, well, let's say, an urban radio station that he's listening to, whether it's uh, Steve Harvey or Ricky Smiley or anybody else. He'll go along with those things because he really doesn't know any better. He has never bothered in his entire life to read a newspaper, not even online. He asks me questions every now and then about political figures, and then before I give him a complete answer, he becomes disinterested and turns away, which simply means he's really not ready to vote. He's really not ready to do a lot of things. I'm not sure that all 16-year-olds are really able to drive, because my own grandson, I'm not quite sure. Moving on, I know I'm not the only one who's been wondering why we suddenly have this epidemic of people dying suddenly, and some of them extremely young. And why is it that I decided a long time ago that I needed an explanation? And if I wasn't going to get one, well then, I probably would turn to ominous explanations for tragedies like DeMar Hamlin's collapse. So two doctors actually did a good job of explaining why are so many people, many of them quite young and seemingly in the peak of health, dropping dead? Today, when we hear news of such events, it's so inescapable that it feels like an epidemic. And of course, the most high profile of these was the near death on national television of 24-year-old Buffalo Bills football player, DeMar Hamlin. Hamlin went into cardiac arrest after a routine hit during a game earlier this month. He was ultimately saved by prompt medical care. But during the drive from the field to the hospital, Hamlin became a potent political symbol. Across social media, prominent pundits and activists, most on the right but some on the left, tied Hamlin's injury to the COVID vaccine. Prior to 2021, athletes collapsing on the field was not a normal event. This is becoming an undeniable and extremely concerning pattern, tweeted Lauren Witzke, who was the Republican nominee in the 2020 Delaware Senate race. Social media was abuzz with similar speculation. A troubled, uncertain public is increasingly turning to a single ominous explanation for such events, COVID vaccinations, especially those from Pfizer and Moderna that use the new mRNA technology. On Twitter, an active subculture using variations of the hashtag died suddenly tracks such unexpected deaths. A teenage basketball player dropping dead, a track star collapsing on the field, a young teacher dying of a heart attack in front of her class, and implies 
that vaccines are the cause. A discredited anti-vaccine documentary, Died Suddenly, has reportedly been seen by millions. Who discredited it and why? And the night of Hamlin's collapse, Tucker Carlson, referencing a supposed study of sudden death among European athletes, made the debunked claim that since the Vax campaign began, there have been more than 1,500 total cardiac arrests, and two-thirds of those were fatal. Is there any truth to any of these claims? Is the public right to be concerned? I'm concerned. Are there actually more healthy people dropping dead than usual? Or is this simply confirmation bias at work? Can we dismiss anything that travels under the banner of died suddenly as conspiracy theorizing? And how should we understand why so many Americans are drawn to this explanation? At least part of that answer to that question is the serious information void on the subject, which is why we wanted to remedy this by asking a practicing cardiologist, John Mandrola, and a practicing hematologist and professor of epidemiology, Vinay Prasad. Cards on the table. Both of those doctors think the vaccines are an important tool for preventing severe illness and death among vulnerable people, particularly the elderly and those with underlying medical conditions. But the doctors are concerned that our federal officials recklessly continue to push for multiple COVID shots for everyone five years old and up, despite the growing evidence that these vaccines may not be appropriate for everybody. The doctors are also concerned about the way side effects of the vaccine, particularly those among young men, have been downplayed. For those reasons and more, they decided it was time to be transparent and honest with the public that has lost trust in our essential public health institutions. If you're one of the many millions of Americans who received the vaccines, and you know I am, chances are you had a short-term side effect, like a day in bed or arm pain or chills, fever, headache, all common responses to many vaccines. I did not have anything except a little soreness around the injection site. But some COVID-19 vaccines have been linked to far more serious events. Shortly after the release of the vaccines, the ones that were developed by Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, which use a different technology than Pfizer and Moderna, were linked to a clotting condition that caused fatal strokes in a small number of women of childbearing age. The condition is so dire that it's a clear link to the vaccines was discovered relatively quickly, despite occurring at extremely low rates. Both doctors argued early, very early on, that the J&J shot should be severely limited, if not outright banned, for women under the age of 55. It was for the simple reason that a safer alternative, the mRNA vaccines, existed for this age group and that the clotting side effect was absolutely catastrophic. Indeed, for very young women or for women who had recovered from a COVID-19 infection, we thought that skipping the vaccine entirely was preferable to getting the J&J. The safety signal for the shot was noted in April 2021, but it wasn't until the following December that the FDA 
took the soft action of deprioritizing the vaccine when it should have gone further and removed it. Most vaccinated Americans, me included, either got Pfizer, that's what I got, or Moderna vaccines. And it is the rare but serious side effect from those shots that generates most of the public concern. The side effect is myocarditis, an inflammation of the heart muscle. Nearly all of the accusations of hashtag died suddenly imply injury from vaccine-induced myocarditis. Myocarditis is not a trivial condition. Hospitalization is often required, and after release, restrictions are put on patients regarding athletic activity and exertion. At first, public health officials were dismissive of myocarditis concerns, but even after they had to acknowledge the existence of vaccine-related myocarditis, they continued to downplay its significance. A joint statement in October 2021 from the CDC and the Department of Health and Human Services said of the condition, only an exceedingly small number of people will experience it after vaccination. Importantly, for the young people who do, most cases are mild, and individuals recover often on their own or with minimal treatment. Some experts cited studies that showed that the risk was very low, in the range of 1 in 100,000 vaccinated people. Such estimates were true, but they hid a critical nuance. Post-vaccine my- This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Myocarditis occurs at much higher frequencies. Estimates are up to 30 times higher in healthy young males. The difference in incidence of myocarditis for this population is crucial especially given that young people have the lowest risk for serious complications from the virus itself. The risk of developing myocarditis rises after the second dose of the vaccine, and Moderna is implicated more often than Pfizer. As a result, some European and Scandinavian countries have limited the use of Moderna in people under age 30. 
This winter, the Danish Health Authority recommended boosters only for people over age 50 and those under 50 who have specific medical conditions. People under 18 are not offered COVID-19 vaccines, with limited exceptions, because the authority says children and adolescents rarely become severely ill from the Omicron variant of COVID-19. The British government also limited their 2022 autumn booster to adults over 50. By now, we were supposed to have a better idea of how often heart inflammation affects people aged 16 through 30 who got the Pfizer vaccine. The FDA authorized Pfizer to conduct a study on this population to look for subclinical myocarditis. It was scheduled for availability at the end of last year, but to date, no news on this pressing issue has been forthcoming. The failure to report this data is notable in light of a recently published study from Thailand, which reported one case of myocarditis and seven cases of cardiac enzyme elevations in 300 adolescents who received two mRNA vaccinations. Two additional studies published in the past few months have raised concerns about the connection between mRNA vaccines and myocarditis. A group at Harvard examined blood from children hospitalized for myocarditis after a COVID-19 vaccination and compared it to blood from healthy children without myocarditis, who also had the vaccination. Their main finding was striking and unexpected. The children with myocarditis had dramatic elevations in the circulating COVID-19 spike protein generated by the vaccine. This suggests that prolonged exposure to the spike protein may be a causal factor in vaccine-caused myocarditis. The second study from Germany reported autopsy findings from 25 people who died unexpectedly within 20 days of receiving a COVID-19 vaccination. In four, acute myocarditis appeared to be the cause of death. Notably, the four affected persons were older adults. These results are not definitive, but the authors called for more detailed studies exploring the possibility of fatal adverse events from the vaccine. Aside from myocarditis, two recent potential safety signals have also emerged. One is that the original Pfizer and Moderna vaccines may result in a risk of blood clots in the lungs. The other is that the newly released Pfizer bivalent booster, a shot that adds protection against the Omicron strain of the virus, may be associated with an increased risk of strokes in people over 65. Look, we all hope these signals turn out to be nothing but it is incumbent upon our public health officials to do something different from their recent pattern. That is, they should look into this evidence thoroughly, then report their comprehensive findings to the public, making all their data available so independent scientists can analyze it for themselves. It's difficult, sometimes impossible, to find the underlying cause for why a seemingly healthy person dies suddenly of cardiac arrest. When someone survives cardiac arrest and is stabilized, as DeMar Hamlin thankfully was, doctors will order a battery of tests to determine the cause. Causes can include conditions that have nothing to do with vaccination, such as anatomical abnormalities or overly thickened heart walls. Myocarditis, though generally not fatal, can be. When it is, death is caused by a super rapid heart rhythm called ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation. 
It can occur shortly after contracting myocarditis. It can also occur more than six months after the condition has apparently resolved. In that case, the problem is that scar tissue created in response to heart inflammation can be the source of the rhythm disturbance. It's one of the reasons that even the slightest bit of inflammation in the heart should be treated seriously. But making the connection between the vaccine, a case of heart inflammation, and a cardiac arrest is very difficult. So let's just say there's always been tragic and unexpected deaths of evidently healthy young people. And while it may seem as though more cases are happening now, that doesn't tell us whether there really is an increase. For one thing, because there's such high interest in this subject, cases are in the news that might not have been a few years ago. A recent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal asserted that there were many excess deaths, that is, more than the number normally expected during 2020 and 2021 that were not attributable to COVID. These non-COVID deaths were strikingly high, 30% above expectations, the authors say, for those between the ages of 18 to 64. They attribute these deaths to the deadly effects of lockdown, deaths from drug overdoses, alcoholism and homicide, as well as from diseases like diabetes and heart disease. They write the CDC data shows the rate of non-COVID excess deaths in the first half of 2022 was even higher than 2020 or 2021. But we don't know anything about how many of the heart-related deaths of the past two years can be attributed to vaccines. We believe that the feverish speculation that COVID-19 vaccines have led to increased sudden deaths is largely due to a trust problem with our public health leaders, and Americans have good reasons for their skepticism. For example, when the evidence about myocarditis in young males was linked to the vaccines, the Biden administration denied it. When further studies confirmed the link, there were still denials coming from every level of government. Let me tell you something right now. Perhaps leaders need to incorporate changing information into their messaging. Forget about calling it misinformation every time a question is asked or posed. And since the vaccine does not prevent transmission, is there a societal benefit in getting vaccinated? That should have been left to people to decide, a personal health decision. But I guess my body, my choice, only applies when killing a baby is involved. The FDA indicates that a change is coming to the current vaccination recommendations. Truth and trust, once lost, is very hard to regain. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.